I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest today is Cassandra Webb. She is a community advocate and a youth and family champion. She's an experienced professional with a demonstrated history of working in the nonprofit sector with a strong focus on economic justice and wealth building. Skilled in community organizing, event coordination, and program development, she is passionate about ensuring that the ways we rebuild communities seeks to include residents and those connected deepest to its past and desired future. We start by exploring what has shaped her path towards this work to begin with. Now that I look back at it, um, I, I do I mean, there's a theme, there's a consistent theme that shows up in um, the work that I've done, the places that I've been at, um, and the work that I'm continuing to do and where I see myself moving into in the future. Um, And that's really around being an organizer and being an advocate for Black youth, their families, and communities. Um, So as as you mentioned, the places that I worked at um, and the different projects that I've worked on, it's really, that's what has been the the strand that's connected all those things. And so um, I am from Louisville, grew up here in the city and um, um, had, you know, my uh, was raised by my two parents that were um, beautiful, loving parents. Um, my mom um, is from Campbellsville, Kentucky, nice. uh, very country. Um, I have tons of family that still live in Campbellsville and Taylor County. And so and my grandmother that's 89 years old lives there wow. still. Um, and so during the summer, it would be a lot of visits to grandma's house and extended periods of time of vacation mm. down there with her. Um, and then my father uh, was raised here in Louisville, grew up in Cotter Homes, which is now Park Duval, um, which my sister lives there now. And um, and most of my family on my father's side grew up in West Louisville, still live in West Louisville. And so um, I had the opportunity of having that experience of being in the country, uh, growing up uh, in summers in Campbellsville, while also being here in Louisville um, and spending time with my family in the West End. Um, and then our home, our family home was in um, a Breckenridge Lane, mutual area. Okay. I grew up around Robin's Roost and going there. Yeah. Um, you know, the skating parties. And so um, really um, got an opportunity to see, you know, multiple sides of Kentucky and of Louisville. Um, and those were really important to how I grew up and who I am today, because I think being able to be in multiple situations, different environments, allowed me to see how different things were, but also how similar things are. Mm. Um, I also went to Catholic school, pre-K through eighth grade, Wow. Uh, right? <laughs> Predominantly white. Um, I was one out of two black children. Um, there was another black girl who is still best friends um, to this day, known her since I was about four years old. Um, but I grew up predominantly in a, in a white school environment. Um, and then I, uh, in a Catholic school at that, and I'm not Catholic. <laughs> ah, I was going to ask, I was, how did, I was wondering how, how you ended up at a Catholic school, uh, if you were Catholic yeah. or. No, um, I think my parents just were really looking to have like the best education opportunity mm-hmm. for me. Um, my sister that's 11 years older than me also went to a Catholic school as well. Um, and so, uh, that's, and then from when um, I left Catholic school, I went to Manual, which was 
very different for me, (laughs) very different Um, in in all the positive ways. Um, It was different. And I really enjoyed my experience um, at Manual and I was super involved in everything that you can be involved in. I was doing it. Um, And then from from Manual, I went to UofL. I did not want to go to UofL at all. at all. Um, I was looking elsewhere. <laughs> I was trying to find as many scholarship opportunities. Um, and then, you know, my mom um, has worked at UofL for 43 years. I grew up on campus. Um, I went to school right across the street at Manuel, and I did not want to go to UofL. I feel like I knew everything there was to know about UofL. Um, but, you know, tuition reimbursement is a is a great opportunity. And to graduate, you know, debt-free so, um, yeah, so I went to University of Louisville and um, there I, I got my, uh, my bachelor's of science degree in political science, um, concentration in law and public policy, um, econ minors and Pan-African studies minors. Um, and the reason I really selected those at the time was that I had a really great teacher in high school that was a um, government and politics teacher. And at the time it was, you know, Obama was running for office or about like the the word was getting out there. Um, Hillary was about to run. I actually got to meet Hillary when I was in high school. Um, And so it was all this excitement. I was like, I want to be a campaign manager. That's what I want to do. I want to be in politics. And, you know, that's the thing. And so um, it was just a lot of excitement around that. Um, I quickly found out going through undergrad, I did not want to do that at all. Um, But I did (laughs) want to be um, around the, the space of people that were making decisions that I knew impacted people that looked like me. Um, and particularly young black black folks. And so that's why I wanted to get minors in, in PAS and in, in econ. Um, my family has always told me about the importance of knowing oneself and knowing one's culture and where you come from. And so PAS was just, Pan-African Studies was just a perfect fit for me, so. Well, hearing your backstory is really fascinating because I think, um, you know, we're both in Louisville, Kentucky, and I think there's, there's a lot going on in our country, but in our community right now. Um, and you in your short life have, have really kind of seen a lot of different perspectives of what, what's going the rural, the urban, you know, the, the segregation that's existed for decades, if not longer in, in Louisville specifically, uh, being one of two black people at an all white Catholic school. I mean, so living in these kind of different worlds and really mm-hmm. seeing the power of education, the opportunity that are afforded some that are not afforded others. Um, you mentioned this, this teacher, um, what are some like, and, and your family as well. I'd love to learn a little bit more about the, what seems to be a pretty powerful influence from your family. What was that like growing up, uh, with, with this grandmother, uh, and these, these, these two parents that, that clearly, uh, have influenced you in, in some positive ways? Yeah. Um, so with my father, um, he actually passed when I was 15. Oh, I'm sorry. And, um, yeah, it's, it's still at times like a really touchy subject. And I, I think um, mainly because, um, you know, I felt really alone at that time when I was 15, 14 years old. Um, and even though I have like this very big, big family um, and, and, was con- and were connected to great friends um, in, in high school and even those that carried over from grade school, um, it just felt really lonely because I didn't have anyone else that really had lost a parent um, and really didn't know what that felt like. 
So for me, um, I really dived really deep in being as active as possible in school. And school was like my thing, um, academics and extracurricular activities. Um, but also with um, my mom's presence, she really reiterated to me the importance of, of school and also importance of knowing oneself and knowing my culture and understanding what it meant to be a young black girl um, growing up in Louisville, Kentucky and America just in general. And so if there were any activities on U of L's campus that were you know hosted by the African American theater department, I was there. We were there for MLK, you know, <laughs> uh, events. We were, I mean, we went everywhere, you know, in our church, um, you know, for Black History Month. I was also always given a poem or in some type of skit. Um, I was always involved in um, extracurricular activities that had a focus on Black youth or either um, if it was not a focus, it was majority Black youth. And so um, she was really diligent about making sure that I felt um, loved and cared for, but I also understood my history. And so on my father, um, before he passed, he also reiterated that, but it was in a different way. It was really family focused, um, making sure that his siblings, he had eight brothers and sisters, and um, I am the youngest of about 31 first cousins. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Huge family. Um, my dad was uh, uh, the first son. And so he really um, held on that responsibility of taking care of family. And so with the both of them, it really, in the, my different experiences, it really um, helped paint a picture of who I am um, and where my life and where my energy should be focused. And so all of that's kind of, to, so now you're, you're at an organization, Cities United, um, mm -hmm. and which I think some, some f in Louisville would be familiar with, but you guys operate actually in multiple cities across the country. Uh, yeah. so give me a little bit of backstory on cities United and the work that you're doing in communities across, across the United States. Sure. Yeah. So cities United is a national organization that's, um, based here in Louisville, Kentucky. We work with 130 cities, um, 30 of them really closely, um, around building out um, our mission and vision of creating safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for Black boys, young Black boys, men, and their families, um, while also reducing the homicides and shooting rates um, amongst Black men and boys between the ages of 14 and 24 by 50%. Um, and a lot of folks ask us, why are we so specific about that 14 to 24? Um, because if you look across um, the data and you can go back years um, around um, data around uh, the number of homicides and shootings, you will see that the victims of violence are typically in that age range um, and they are black men and boys. And so Cities United was created in 2011 um, with a couple mayors, Mayor Landrew out of New Orleans and Mayor Nutter out of Philly. Um, they really came together and we're seeing this increase in the high rates of violence. Um, and then they came together with some national organizations, Sean Dove from the Campaign of Black, uh, Black Male Achievement, um, National League of Cities and others. Um, and they said, we have to do something about this, as well as Dr. Um, Bell, William C. Bell from the Casey Family Programs. So they came together and said, like, we have to do something about this. And that's how Cities United was formed. Um, and in 2005, we had our first and our current executive director, Anthony Smith, come on board. Um, and he's really blossomed the organization to what it is today. Um, so we are based here in Louisville, and that really gives us an, an opportunity to do some um, really innovative projects with city government. 
Um, and so that's that's what I get to do on a regular basis is work on those uh, innovative and unique strategies that we're implementing. That's great. Because I think it's interesting, even in Louisville, I think people are familiar with Cities United and Anthony came from the the Center for Healthy Neighborhoods, I think it was, um, before that. Yeah. Well, uh, he came from um, Network Center for Community Change, that's which right. is actually how we met. Yep. Okay. Yep. And and I think, so sometimes people assume Cities United is, is just this Louisville-based effort. And there is a lot of work that you do with the government and also in Louisville, Kentucky, but 130 cities across the country. Mm-hmm. And in a very laser-focused effort to, to really hone in on how to support uh, black males, young black males specifically, which is really interesting because in a, in a previous podcast, we talked about over-criminalization and just the criminal justice system as a whole and the, the real need to focus on how do we mitigate, how do we reduce criminal deviancy? And some of the best ways we can do that are by providing uh, good role models, uh, connecting young black men specifically with, with role models. How do we strengthen families? How do we strengthen the home? Uh, and so I think there's, there's a lot of great studies around like, let's, you know, this, this war on drugs and that the sheer f- the volume of people that are in our criminal justice system could be reduced if we actually help provide many of the resources to, to people and families and communities. So um, yeah. the work you guys do is pretty amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Our approach to violence prevention is looking at it from a public health lens. Um, We understand that there's many factors that go into why communities are experiencing um, high rates of community violence. And for us, um, looking at those root causes is essential in the work that we do. Um, And so those root causes are some of the things that you mentioned around having stable housing, um, education, youth services, family supports, employment, um, healthcare, especially mental and physical health. Um, and so we look into all of those as we build out strategies in partnership with mayors and city governments and community organizations and those that are, have been most impacted by violence. We look at those different factors as we build out plans with cities around how they can reduce that. And we also look at how do we redefine, reimagine public safety? Because oftentimes when folks think about public safety, they go automatically to the police. Um, and so we want to shift that and under and and help the public actually understand that those root causes of violence are actually there. And if we can address those, we can really see a big difference, not only with um, the reduction of violence, but also in really getting to that to that mission and that vision of safe and healthy communities. And the the emphasis on uh mental and emotional is really fascinating because I think the effects of trauma, this, this, there's this big growing conversation around just trauma. Uh, it's mm-hmm. something we've, you know, I think everyone is affected by trauma in different ways. People experience trauma differently. You know, it might be post postpartum, it might be uh, sexual abuse, sexual assault. Um, but there's also just like the effects of violence and, and, and the trauma that creates on people and communities. And then really, if you can actually address that from a public health perspective, what does that have, uh, what effect does that have on a, on a, on a long-term um, trajectory for, for, for a community? So I think that's an right. interesting, because I, I haven't heard, and I love that you guys are adding that and, and really talking about the public health effects of, of violence on communities, because that's, that's where these things are per- perpetuated, um, is mm-hmm. when we don't address these at a root issue and address the, the factors that lead to uh, criminal deviancy that then ultimately... Uh, like you said, public safety is more than policing. Policing should be mm-hmm. the, the final, we shouldn't try to use it as we do, uh, measure in, in communities. So, 
Yeah, and there's other ways to address the the issues that we see um, in society. Um, so, you know, if, if someone is having a mental health break, you know, police may, you know, it's not the best to respond in that situation. You know, there's mental health counselors can that can be deployed to address situations like that. Um, and so I, that's part of our work that we're doing uh, with cities is definitely helping to, to kind of reimagine like in situations like that, um, what other resources can really be invested in that can be um, issued out in prevention practices, but also in the moment, yeah. if, if, if there are moments of violence happening, um, and then the after effects around the trauma and healing pieces. Do you share best practices among among the cities? Because um, I think that's a really fascinating thing to, to, to be where you are and sitting and saying, okay, this is what we're going to address, and looking and working with 100 diff- 130 different cities. You've got to have uh, a repository of cities that are doing it well in certain areas. Like, what are some examples of communities that you think... Um, their, their procedures or applications of, of, of public health or public safety could be replicated and, and really, really um, address some of the things that we're seeing in our communities across the country right now. Yeah, so because we do work in so many cities, it is a great place to really learn which strategies are being employed where and how those can be replicated and those models can be replicated elsewhere. Um, And so there are some great cities that are doing work around violence interruptions um, practices. So there are folks that are out in the street that are having conversations uh, with those that may be victims of violence um, or may be the perpetrators of violence and really trying to have like those conflict resolution conversations and really encouraging them to go other ways instead of retaliation. Um, and so there are cities that are doing those models um, like, like in Philly, um, they have a, a, a violence prevention. There's also cure violence as a model. Um, and so uh, those cities um, like Philly is typically up Northeast that are doing those types of activities. Um, but you also have other cities that are really looking at their, their budgeting and figuring mm-hmm. out like, okay, so we do spend so much money on, you know, on police, but we don't spend so much on education and, you know, education keeps getting peeled back further and further, or we don't spend as much money around health or family support. So let's really do some reassessment. Um, there's also cities like in Stockton, California with Mayor Tubbs, who is a young mayor, um, who I think just turned 30, same age as me, um, doing phenomenal work around how do you give universal basic income to families? You know, if we, we keep talking about poverty and we need to solve poverty and folks need money, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they need the, the, the opportunity to, to bring in some additional income and to support their family in the moment, but also plan for the future. We're seeing the Mayor Stubbs, uh, he's actually had some really good traction and you know, there was a lot of skepticism around what this would look like. And he's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to do it and I'm going to show that it works. And he's actually demonstrated some pretty interesting and compelling, uh, uh, results. And I think we're also seeing some of that too, with what's going on with COVID and, 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 uh, the, the checks to families in the midst of crisis and how that really has helped mm-hmm. if nothing else from a mental and emotional health perspective, just to be able to take a, take a breath and, and kind of press forward and, and not, really be concerned too much with, uh, with that 1200 bucks. That's, that's super nice in the pocket. So I am curious, what, what are some of the roadblocks? Cause I think the, the models you mentioned are, are awesome. And you think, okay, if it, uh, these principles, maybe not like cookie cutter, you know, different, different city governments do things differently. What are some of the issues, the roadblocks that you're seeing as, as you work in all these different communities from really trying to apply 
what works in Philly into, into other markets? Are, is it, is it unions like the police unions? Are they strong? Like you mentioned budgets, like where, where is the, where's the, where's the roadblock? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I think they, they vary. Um, and, but I do think like, if I had to like summarize it, it really comes down to, um, some fundamental like differences in like values and in beliefs in why, um, violence is uh, happening in cities. Um, and so some people just don't have not bought into that public health approach. They don't, they don't believe that it is these different factors that people are living in neighborhoods and in environments where there's limited choices choices, limited options, um, and they truly believe that that folks are inherently bad. And uh, because they are inherently bad, they are making, in, you know, bad choices. And so, um, and I think if, you know, decisions um, uh, around budgets or around policy or whatever, when you really like peel it back, you really got to get to like, what is that, that person, that institution's value system? Um, what do they really believe in about individuals, about families and communities? Um, and so that, that hesitation from being able to really um, shift budgets or to change policies or to start implementing different strategies, um, to me really comes down to like that, that true belief in value system. That's an interesting way to frame it because I think, you know, in the in the investment world, we we, we do a lot around um, investments, and I think there's a there's a there's almost two camps as you've kind of put it, where you either believe the the way to get money the, that there's enough money out there, and if you work hard enough, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps is a common phrase, um, mm-hmm. and you have a real, a good idea, it's inevitably gonna gonna get money, um, and almost this discounting of the fact that you know, the educational circles you run in, the community circles you run in, the the gender circles you run in, the racial circles you run in have afforded you a measure of privilege and access that isn't open to everyone. Or the fact that you live in a certain community and uh, banks are more willing to lend to you, or you have a family member. Uh, I mean, the, the staggering statistic for me is, you know, as a white guy, the average family in America has $100,000 in net worth, and the average black mm-hmm. family has 7,600. And so mm-hmm. when you talk about access to capital and opportunity and the first place you go is your family and friend network, that's a pretty staggering statistic. And so I think the, I think you're, you're really spot on. And I think that's a really w- great way to say it. There's it, a fundamental difference of values. Um, and we're seeing it played out nationally, right? This idea mm-hmm. of like, if you truly believe there is privilege or if there's not, or, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about, I think I saw yesterday on CNN that they were interviewing um, Attorney General Barr, and he was basically saying that he didn't believe systemic, there were two, race, uh, two justice systems, that systemic racism yeah. was, not, was not a reality. And so I think as this plays out, this is how it's manifest in communities and how we think about budgets and, and priorities for public health versus policing. Mm-hmm. So it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you have benefited from, um, you know, being able to be in, in privileged classes, um, you're, you're going to be hesitant to acknowledge that where your privilege comes from um, and acknowledge that some of the things that you own, um, you know, or the, the spaces that you can be in, you're allowed to be in, have really been from not from being able to pull yourself up from your bootstraps, but really been um, based on how you look 
or you know your family lineage and um and so yeah i think america is dealing with that right now um everywhere you know across the country um in cities and you see that in the uprisings um in the major cities across the country and you see that here in local yeah and i think it's you know it's, it's a person by person thing because i because i know even for myself you know growing up you don't ever want to be able to say like i didn't i didn't earn this like i worked really hard i went to college i, I you know i was a military officer. I, I mean, I earned these things. And I think there's a measure of truth, but I also think there, I have to acknowledge that I was afforded the opportunity to, to go to these institutions of higher learning and, and get these jobs because of, of who I am. And I think you have to kind of come to that process of, of understanding what that looks like and what that means. And it doesn't diminish what you might have achieved as an individual, but you have to at least say you we're one lap in on a one mile course, I mean, or two or three. And, uh, and that those two things can be true. Right. Uh, so, right. Uh, that's, that's good. So I want to flip a little bit you, uh, cause at cities United, you guys do a lot of different things, but I think one of the things here, here you do in Louisville is, uh, you help manage the Russell place of promise effort. Um, yeah. so talk to me a little bit about that. And I think specifically with this, uh, I see a lot of your community activism and organization come out. So I'd love to hear, what Russell Place Promise is doing and, and really how you're trying to approach it uh, maybe differently than how some community uh, community work's done. Yeah, so um, so Russell Place of Promise is a wealth uh, justice, um, economic justice-based initiative that's focused on black wealth building in the Russell neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. And so Russell, just for context for folks that are listening and watching, uh, Russell is west of 9th Street it is uh, north of Broadway, east of 32nd Street, and south of Market. Um, it's a pretty large neighborhood. It is considered the gateway of the West, um, um, since it is just right across west of 9th Street um, and uh, the most northeast neighborhood of, of the West End. Um, and the work that we're doing is, uh, to me, is extremely important for Russell. Um, Russell it was once known as the Harlem of the South. It was the place where it's rumored that Langston Hughes used to come and hang out. Um, it was an economically vibrant neighborhood for Black Louisvillians, um, as well as um, not only economically, but it had a major arts and culture scene. Um, black Louisvillians and, and Black folks across the region used to come to Russell to hang out, uh, to party, to do business, um, to eat, to dine. Um, and it, it was just um, uh, from what I can read and the stories I've heard um, from old, from Black elders is that it was a beautiful place to be. Um, and still is today, um, but is we think back around the, the decades of um, redlining um, and urban renewal and other really racist policies and practices that came from not only uh, government, um, but as well as those, the private sector, it really decimated what was that beautifully vibrant, economically vibrant neighborhood. Um, and after several decades of, of disinvestment, um, divestment, you really see um, the impacts of what the neighborhood has experienced um, with, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of removing the, the opportunities for, for home ownership for Black uh, residents and the possibility, making it harder for Black businesses to thrive. 
And so through it all though, Russell has maintained a lot of its history from Central High School, um, being the home of the high school that Muhammad Ali and Alberta Jones and many other uh, black leaders have come through um, and come from. Uh, it has still maintained those assets and the people that have always called Russell home. And so as we look across the country, Russell is not, um, is not, a, uh, is not different from a lot of different, um, a lot of other historically black neighborhoods across the country. Um, it, it, if you look at other cities like DC or in Philly or on the West Coast, um, you will see that if, if you look at historically black and brown neighborhoods, um, the urban, uh, urban renewal, redlining, other practices like that um, really destroy what was once there. Um, and, and communities have struggled to gain that, gain that back. Um, and Russell, um, as well as other neighborhoods around West Louisville and, and downtown, um, there's a large number of investment that's coming into the neighborhood um, and, and surrounding. And typically, when that happens, hundreds of million dollars of investment goes into neighborhoods. Gentrification is on the rise. And, um, and we've just seen it in a lot of different places. And so gentrification um, hurts the ability of, of residents and businesses and churches and community-based organizations that have always called um, those neighborhoods and Russell home hurt their abilities to be able to be stabilized and be able to really grow and thrive. And so Russell Place of Promise is an opportunity to really focus in those, those individuals, those residents, those businesses, those other stakeholders um, to invest in the existing and those at former, you know, that have moved out, but um, due to displacement, um, but want to be rooted in Russell, um, really an opportunity to invest in, in those people and places that make Russell special. That's good. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned gentrification because I think whenever you get to community work that often comes up and, and I was curious um, if we could camp out there a little bit because the, the, the term gentrification is, is really actually only about a half a century old and there's a lot of kind of confusion around what that, and you know, so, so some people will say that and they mean one thing. And so I'm curious because like on, on some levels, people look at gentrification and it's, it's a four letter word. Uh, it's displacement. It's, it's like a virus. Uh, and others, it's, it's community development. It's, it's improvement. Um, and then for most, it really brings a sense of anxiety, uh, fear, uh, and concern. Um, and so for, for you, as you, as you step into the work in Russell Place of Promise, um, what does that, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to the community? And, and what measures are you taking to, to really, thoughtfully uh, work with the community to, to, uh, to realize uh, a rebuilding of wealth. Yeah, so I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think sometimes terms are thrown out and people have different meanings and different va different values for those for those terms. And so the way that um, we think about gentrification is really um, when we hear that term, it's gentrification and in investment, typically community development has traditionally been at the hands of people that do not live in the neighborhood and are not connected to the neighborhood. And so for us, it's extremely important for our pop, um, that's what we call Russell Place of Promise for short, um, is that our pop is really led by residents um, and that it as an organization is led by black people, residents that either live in Russell, live in West End or care um, about it or have worshiped in or have connections, familiar connections to the neighborhood um, or 
um, or just have um, really um, a values that are in alignment with being um, transparent, um, being considerate, also understanding that um, it is not for one, a, a, a typical investor that would come in. It's like, I'm just trying to get a return on my investment. You know, I'm just worried about <laughs> what I have, um, my wealth. Um, but for us, it's really about if folks are, are going to be investing, how do you do investment in partnership with those that have always called Russell home. It is not folks coming in and, and just investing in a property and getting their return on benefits, but it's how do we ensure that residents also have a stake in ownership? Because um, as you look at Russell, um, whether it is commercial or residential real estate, you will see a lot of that is not owned by Russell residents. And it's not owned by Black-led organizations or uh, Black places of faith. Um, or businesses, it is owned by outside entities that don't have a connection. Yeah. And so for us, it's, that's, you know, we're, we're trying to shift that. And I think that's a, it's a really helpful definition because it's not saying folks from the outside of that community can't participate. Um, it, but I think that the idea of connection, uh, purpose, um, community led is really powerful. Cause I think on some levels it's, a uh, the way you describe gentrification is gentrification that is almost like a modern day colonization mm-hmm. um, is, is, is what we're talking about. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the negative gentrification where uh, historically white money has come from the outside and bought up nice buildings and, and, and increased property values with no thought to the residents or people that have connections. Maybe they don't live there, but they have a connection to that community. And, right. that, and that wasn't considered in, in the, uh, in the redevelopment of that community. So that's, that's helpful. Cause I think that really sets the table well, um, for the work that you're trying to do. And so I think it does, it takes time though. And, you know, cause mm-hmm. like, you know, so as an investor or as someone that's like, okay, I get this, I, I really, I desire for the community, but that takes a lot of time. So talk to me about like what you, what the time that goes, like, what do you do in, in the midst of trying to make sure that the co- people connected and the community are participating at the table, making these decisions? Yeah. So the project, um, our pop launched two years ago. Um, and since then we've built out an outreach team. We have about five members on our outreach team. Um, they either live in Russell or live in West Louisville, which is extremely important for us. Um, and we have, we we have been and will continue to focus on that relationship building piece. So we have members of our team that are on a regular everyday basis um, working with Russell residents to get them connected to resources that they need, especially right now during COVID. Um, Those Russell residents that are um, concerned about rent payments and and mortgages and things like that. Um, We are also working very closely with the existing Black businesses in the neighborhood. We have a business uh, accelerator that we're actually launching later this month. with 12 businesses that are either located in Russell or um, or West Louisville um, and trying to get them connected to the different um, COVID relief um, funds, as well as um, also getting them connected to other Black businesses that can support them um, in their development. 
And we've also been working with faith leaders in the community um, and supporting them and making sure that they, you know, since church services and worship services have been on a halt, um, you know, and tithes and offerings have not been coming in. And, you know, folks are concerned um, with the properties that they own, um, uh, trying to just make sure that they get support, the financial support, so they can uh, make sure that their church still um, is, is thriving and that their congregation members are also feeling supported. Um, so so this, this past um, couple years and um, moving into 2021, it, for us, is really about that relationship building piece and building a partnership with all the different stakeholders, especially residents. And so um, over this next couple of months, we're actually moving into um, a, a process of building out a partnership agreement with residents where we're going to be engaging with 25 residents um, about our pop, trying to identify the priorities with our wealth building strategies around home ownership, business retention creation, uh, workforce development, um, and community ownership of, of assets. We're, we're going to go through that and try to prioritize those, build out an accountability structure for our pop staff and the advisory board. Um, and then also think about like, what is our pop going to be in a couple of years? Because it's not going to stay in the incubation phase yeah. for much longer. And so we need to be thinking about like, what does our pop need to become to really be able to meet all the goals um, and meet the needs and wants of residents? And so we'll be going through that process with, with uh, a few residents in the next couple of months, which really makes me excited. My organizer, my community organizer, heart <laughs> um, to be focusing on that and also doing some leadership development work. That's, that's busy and good. That's awesome. So I, I'd love to, um, because I think what I've really enjoyed in our conversation is you're, you're very passionate and I think um, focused on, on what's to come. I'd love to know from an RPOP perspective, from a Cassandra perspective, what does success look like? You know, if we're able to achieve the, what you're set out to do, what does that, what does that look like? Um, and I don't, I don't need a timetable. You know, it could be two years. It could be 20 years, but what, what would success look like in the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I think success looks like um, as we look over, um, look at the neighborhood in a few years from now is that there are places in the neighborhood that have been here that are still here. Mm -hmm. um, there are new places, uh, new, new um, that are owned by residents that they can say, hey, I built that or, hey, I own that, or, you know, I decorated that, or I, you know, I constructed this with, you know, my own hands, or I had a part in building this out, a part of being a part of the strategic planning, and really being proud, um, because I think we have, you know, in Russell, there are so many proud residents um, already there, but just to be able to look at places um, and spaces and say, like, I had a part of that, um, I want our pops to be a part of that picture um, and be able to really shift the way um, ownership of the neighborhood looks to really into the hands of black residents and those business owners and, um, and, and places of faith and other stakeholders that really call Russell home. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and want to learn more about Cassandra's work, check out russellpromise.com and citiesunited.org. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you've liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.